If you would please go ahead and open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. We will start looking today at verse 25. We'll read through verse 33, which we've already done. Actually, we'll start in verse 22. I want to say uh, that the last, so we've, we've focused quite a bit on married couples, on husband and wife. And today I want to look at single folks, singles. And the, so the title for today's sermon is A Singles Response. What do you do as you read verses 22 down to 33, as you read about wives, you read about husbands, how should a person who is single respond to everything that we have looked at? We've looked at quite a bit. We have spent uh, two sermons on wives. We've had three sermons on husbands. And so now the single person is wondering, what about me? I'm just kind of left out in the cold. And as I said at the beginning, it's important that everyone recognize that the, as God's word, this is important for, for all people, whether you're married or not, whether you have children or not. Uh, th- there's much truth here that we can apply to our lives in very specific ways. And we looked at that as we, as we started with the context of our passage uh, for this series, which is verses 5-22-6-4. As we looked at the context, we learned that everything we read about family life, married life, raising children, sort of flows out of all of the theology that we get at the beginning of the book of Ephesians. And so all of that theology about the gospel, about God's love for us in Christ, that's the foundation for everything we read in this passage. So everything we've looked at so far, I think, is directly applicable to all believers. But today, I do want to isolate the group known as singles. We're we're in a, a series, for those of you who are just kind of maybe joining with us today, you haven't been here in the past, say, couple of months, we're in a series called My Family for His Glory. And as I said before, we're looking at Ephesians 5.22 to 6.4, focusing in on these interrelationships within the family. We have wives and husbands, we have children, and then we have fathers, and by extension, parents. So all of that is treated. This is the most elaborate passage in all of the Bible, really, on family life. So I hope that as married couples who've been here so far that you have benefited from God's Word and that the Spirit of God has applied it to your life. So let's read Ephesians 5, and let's start in verse 22. We'll go through to verse 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, 
and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And you'll see at the very, the very next word is children. So we'll be moving on after today. We'll be moving on to children and parenting. But today as we come to singles, I want to look at four groups of singles. Because there are different kinds of singles. So four groups of singles that we're going to look at this morning. Go ahead and, thank you. <laughs> four groups. So those who are searching, those who are questioning those who are misunderstanding, and those are growing. Four types of singles that we may or may not have here in our church. And I'll explain what, what I mean by each of those. It may not be apparent at this point, but I'll explain what each of those means. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get started this morning. Our Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be among your people God, what a joy it is to gather as the church of the living God, a, a local church, a local expression of the glorious gospel that you present to us in your word, that you sent your only son to take on flesh, that he came and lived the life of a peasant Jewish man. He was holy and perfect, and he died for our sins on the cross, that on the third day you raised him from the dead. And now since that time, since his resurrection and ascension, the forgiveness of sins in his name, has been preached to all nations. And God, we are here this morning, we recognize because the gospel of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ has been preached to us, that we've heard, as Paul often says to his audience in his letters, we've heard the gospel and we've believed. And God, we, we praise you for that faith, that gift of faith which you have given so many of us as we've trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and his death and resurrection. And we have been grafted in to your household, to your people. We have been adopted as your children. We have been made members of Christ, become part of his bride who will one day, we will one day see him and meet with him and be with him forever. God, we praise you for these glorious truths. And God, we recognize that there may be some here this morning who don't know you, who are not born again believers, who have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And God, I pray for those people today. God, I pray that you will convict that you will show the glory of the gospel and that you will give them faith to put everything into Jesus, to trust everything, their entire lives, into Jesus Christ. God, we pray today that you'll bless the sermon. Ask that your spirit will apply the word to my heart as I preach and also to the hearts of everyone here in this room, that you will cut us to the heart and that we will be changed and made more and more like Christ as we leave here today and go on about this week. We love you and we praise you for all the, all the good things that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start this morning by looking at this group of singles who are searching. Who are searching. And here I'm speaking to those singles who want and intend to marry and are trying to figure out what kind of person they're looking for. So who is it that you are going to end up marrying? Who is this person that you're sort of, as you go about your daily life, as you go about work, as you come to church, and as you sort of mingle with people, you're asking yourself the question, perhaps you're in this category, you're asking yourself the question, what kind of person or who am I going to marry? And I want you to notice, look back at chapter 5 in Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 18. Everything that we get later begins here. Verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, 
giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Everything that we read there begins with this notion of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Everything comes out of that passage. And we read through, as we get to chapter 22, we get to, as we get to verse 22, we see wives. And as we get to verse 25, we see husbands. So how do you go about selecting the right person to marry? I want to give you three preliminary concerns. As you're thinking about this task of picking the right person, so to speak, these are just three preliminary thoughts. First, there must be a deep and continual application of everything we've looked at to yourself. That's the starting point, right? So you may go out, you may be thinking, okay, I'm looking for these things in that person. And so you're looking outward exclusively or maybe even primarily you're looking outward. And what I want to get you to think about is that the first place where you need to, to, to bring your eyes is to yourself. One of the things that you very typically find among married couples who are struggling this is, almost all, this is always the case, is you have a husband who is consumed with the faults of his wife. And you have a wife who is consumed with the faults of her husband. And so there's an outward lookingness. They're sort of looking out at the faults, the weaknesses of this spouse, rather than looking into yourself. And just as that is a problem within marriage, that is also a problem for someone who is looking to be married. I'll say this also, it, it's a good habit to get into because when you're married, it will be important that you look inward and not outward focusing on the faults and weaknesses of your spouse. So doing that now will ensure that you are the right person for someone else to marry and it will also ensure that once you become married, you'll be thinking in the right way. So, Verses 22 all the way to 33, we've gone through these five sermons. We've had lots to say to wives and lots to say to husbands. Step one is to apply all of that material to your own heart and to your own conduct. A second preliminary concern, I think, is that folk, we must focus on our own relationship with God. And this will bring the wisdom that is needed for choosing well. This is one of the points that... John MacArthur makes in his sermon on, uh, in, in, a, in a sermon on this passage to husbands and to wives. And we read in Romans 12, 1 to 2, as you present your body as a living sacrifice, listen to this, holy and acceptable to God, and as you are transformed by the renewal of your mind rather than being conformed to this world, as you do these things, listen to what it says, you will be able to discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. So if you're single and you're looking for the right person, you first have to apply all of this material to yourself. And the second thing that you must do is make your relationship with Christ central because as you grow in your union with Christ, you grow in wisdom. And as you grow in wisdom, you grow in the ability to see whom God has prepared for you. You grow in your ability to discern God's will for your own specific life. <clears throat> A third preliminary concern, remember that you will not find perfection. So some people kind of go on and on and on in singleness because they're just so picky, right? And it's different, There's, is there, it's, it's different from being picky to being biblically selective, all right? What I want to encourage you to do is to be biblically selective, not picky. 
And so people go on and on looking for the perfect person, forgetting all the while that they themselves are not perfect. So you're looking for someone perfect when you yourself are not perfect. So what if the person that you're trying to identify is also looking for someone who is perfect? Guess what? They're going to look right past you because you're not perfect either. So you're not looking for perfection, but nonetheless, there are some things, if you're single, that you should be looking for. And so I want to give you some major questions that you can ask that arise out of our text. As we've kind of come away from chapter 5, these these verses, verses 22 to 33, all of this truth about wives and all of this truth about husbands, from the text I want to give you some questions, some very basic questions that you can ask as you're trying to discern who is the person that I need to marry. So question number one, most fundamental. Does this person have the Holy Spirit? Why would you ask this question? Well, as I read before, everything that we see in verses 22 to 33 flow out of verse 18 being filled with the Spirit. We learn in Romans chapter 8 that to be filled with the Spirit is the same as belonging to Christ. Those who have the Spirit are filled with the Spirit are those who belong to Christ. Those who belong to Christ are those who are filled with the Spirit. And so the most basic question that you're asking is, does this person have the Holy Spirit? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, Paul says that a widow is free to marry. Husband dies, no longer bound, go, remarry, that's fine. But then he says, only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. Free to marry only other Christians, he says. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14... This very well-known passage that has been frequently misinterpreted to be about race says, do not be unequally yoked or do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? And so believing people need to marry believing people. Now there is instruction in the New Testament, both Peter and Paul give instruction for, you know, what if you've, you've become a Christian and your spouse is an unbeliever? Or what if you kind of got married foolishly and that person wasn't a believer, you were a believer, and now you're stuck in a marriage where that person is not a believer? They're, Peter and Paul both give advice on what you ought to do in that situation. You stay with the person and you try to live faithfully before them with the hope that they too will become believers. But anyone who is a believer should not go out and make a marriage and, and, and enter into a covenant with someone who is an unbeliever. This is clear from God's word. And so, but this is not just a matter of just sort of, this is what the Bible says, move on. There are a few reasons why this makes perfect sense. First, a person who is a believer is someone who is loved by God and who therefore knows how to love. Someone who's experienced the love of God and is able to extend the love of God. A person who is an unbeliever does not. A person who is a believer's ultimate hope is in Christ. 
Not in that spouse, not in this family life, not in weekends and vacations and holidays and everything else. It's not in money. It's not in achieving a certain lifestyle. So there's, there's a fundamental difference in what drives a person who is of Christ, who belongs to Christ, who has the Spirit. This is a person who is driven by, or pulled by rather, a hope in Christ. A future inheritance. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. Whereas an unbeliever has none of this. We also find that in Christ, there is power to change. Real change. Real change is not just behavior modification, as Paul Tripp often talks about. But real change is deep heart change. And deep heart change can only come through the power of the Holy Spirit as we are conformed into the image of Jesus. And so, the first question you should ask, you're single is does this person have the Holy Spirit? The second question, I think, that you should ask is this. Is this person serious about the word that is inspired by the Spirit? Is this person serious about the word? In Ephesians 5.26, one of the verses we've studied, it says that Jesus cleanses his church with the word. This is the means of sanctification. This is the means of spirit filling. So you ask yourself the question, okay, I want to be filled with the spirit. I have the Holy Spirit. I'm born again. I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me. I'm regenerate. How do I live a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit? So the Holy Spirit is guiding me and directing everything that I do, say, and think. How does that come about? The answer is the word of God, the word that the Holy Spirit himself inspired. This is called the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6. So what do I mean by serious about the Word? And I want to say a few things on this. There is a difference between living in Bible culture Christianity and being serious about the Word of God. A very big difference. We live in a culture, sort of subculture, where, uh, you know, we've got like Bible verses everywhere. Bible verses glued to the wall. Bible verses on the mirror. Bible verses in little trinkets, Bible verses around our neck and little uh, necklaces. We have Bible verses with Bible verse t-shirts. We have Bible verses on the back of our cars. Bible verses everywhere and we, we, because we believe that the word of God is, is precious and we want to sort of fill our lives with the word of God. But I think we also live in a Christian culture where a lot of the attention that is given to the Bible is about that deep. It's very superficial. It's very surface level. And so what you find are, are people who just sort of grew up with lots of cliches, grew up with lots of, of familiarity with the Bible, but have no real depth in the Bible, both in understanding it and applying it to life. That's one of the reasons why we take that very seriously here at this church, both in men's theology, women's theology, as well as in the way that we think about sermons and, and the time we devote to that, is because we believe that understanding and applying God's word is most significant in terms of our ability to live well as disciples. So you're asking the question, is this person serious about the word by which he or she will be sanctified? Does he or she read it? Does he or she devote time to really studying it? Do you see a conscientiousness about obeying it? Or is it just sort of, yeah, I'm a Christian. Look at my t-shirt. Kind of Christian life. We see that, 
I think, far too much. Is this person serious about the word? That's the second question. Third question, does this person care about the church? Now, you might think, well, these are all just super basic questions. But the reason why this question is so important has more to do with the passage we've looked at than you might think. Because everything that we've seen in this passage has been based on a pattern for marriage that is Christ and his church. So if you don't have a high view of the church, you can't have a high view of a wife's role to her husband or a husband's role to his wife because you don't get it. A high view of the church breeds a high view of marriage and vice versa. To be in the church, to love the church, to care for one another in the church, to make it a priority in your life is to understand this is the church for which Christ died. Precious, precious bride of a wonderful husband and savior. And it's living in that kind of, kind of atmosphere of the church, Christ and the church, that you then step into marriage and say, man, i got to love my wife like Christ loves the church. That's huge. And the wife says, I need to submit to my husband as the church submits to Christ. And because that person is in the church, vibrantly in the church, they understand what that means. And they're able to move into marriage in a healthier kind of way. Of way. Does this person care about the church? Is this person humble and responsible? That's the final question. Is this person humble and responsible? Now, there are lots of specific things to look for. I could go through the list of wives, and I thought about doing that, putting up the list of the, the practical points that we had about wives and about husbands and say, you're looking for this person, you know, and all these points, right? That would be a little bit overburdensome, I think, for all of us. So if you want to kind of look at all of those things and kind of condense them into to basic ideas, I think these two emerge. You're looking for someone who is humble and someone who is responsible. Remember that the wife's fundamental responsibility to her husband is to submit or to come underneath her husband. She will not be able to do that without humility. A kind of humility that comes from the spirit of Christ. It's the kind of humility that Christ exhibited, and we read about in Philippians 2, where he, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, became a man, gave himself up to death, even death on a cross. That kind of humility is what all Christians are called to, and it only comes by way of the Holy Spirit. And a wife is called to a particular expression of that as she submits to her husband. And a husband is called to what? Give himself up for her. Verse 25. No husband can give himself up, his own desires, his own needs, his own wants, his own dreams, unless he humbles himself or has the humility of Christ flowing through his own spirit. We also read of wives. One of the points that I made about wives is that she is a wise speaker. And I drew on the idea in 1 Peter 3, 4 that she has a gentle and quiet spirit. At the heart of having a gentle and quiet spirit, which is the kind of wife, guys, single guys that you want to find, is a woman who's humble. It's a woman who knows who she is before Christ and who submits herself to Christ. A husband is one who is not to be harsh with his wife. Colossians 3.19 says that. He cherishes her. 
He is not domineering towards her. He's not overbearing towards her. He does not say, you're supposed to submit and sort of put her underneath his foot. That is not a humble spirit. That is not the kind of humility that Christ demonstrated as he got down on his knees and washed the feet of his disciples. A wife must be humble and a husband must be humble. Here's another thing I want you to see about humility. Humility breeds a gracious and forgiving attitude. So where a person is not humble but filled with pride, filled with a sense of entitlement, filled with this idea that they've achieved or whatever else, they're not going to be gracious with their spouse's faults. They're not going to look at their spouse's faults and say, I sympathize with that. I'm frail too. No way. They're going to look at their spouse's faults and say, what's wrong with you? Why can't you conform? Why can't you do this? Being humble before God means that you recognize how vile you are apart from Christ's grace. And it enables you to show grace to your spouse. To persevere, to give healthy accountability, and to be gracious in all of your speech and all of your behavior towards that person. So humble. You're looking for a person who's humble, and I think you're also looking for a person who's responsible. Why did I choose this word responsible to sort of capture so many of the ideas that, we, that we've seen in this set of sermons? Well, sort of a dictionary, uh, a dictionary definition of responsible is this, able to be trusted to do what is right or to do the things that are expected or required. So why am I going there? Well, one of the points I made about a wife is that she is a reliable helper. Read Proverbs 31. This is a woman who is always working. She's industrious. She's taking care of those things entrusted to her by God and entrusted to her by her head, her husband, her leader. She's working. She's striving. She's rising early. She's taking care of the home. She's taking care of the kids. She is a reliable helper. This is a person who's responsible. And a husband, he's called to be a protector. A provider, a discipler, we looked at each of these. All of these imply that one is responsible. So that's a big killer. If you're dating someone, you may say, well, this person has a lot of Bible all over their life. But they're about as irresponsible as it gets. Well, that should be a red flag. That should be a red flag when they're irresponsible and undisciplined in the things that are entrusted to their care. Things that God has given them as a steward. A stewardship from God when, when there's irresponsibility with those things and you're single and you're dating that person, red flag. Because that person may refuse to be a reliable helper when she becomes a wife. That person may refuse to be a protector, a discipler, and a provider when he becomes a husband. Now at this point, some of you who are already married are thinking, Man, what have I done? Because I just want to say that everything we've already talked about would apply to you. Christ's grace, the ability to reflect Christ to this person, his ability to change by his spirit that person whom you love, the application of the gospel to their heart as they see the gospel lived out in you, much prayer, there's much grace for the frustrated spouse. But here, the desire really is to head that off for those of you who haven't gone down that road yet. Think before you marry this person. 
and ask these questions. Does this person have the Holy Spirit? Is this person serious about the word of the Spirit? Does this person care about the church? And is this person humble and responsible? These are basic questions, but I think they will guide you a long way in making a healthy decision before the Lord in wisdom. So those who are searching. Now I want to look at those who are questioning. Those who are questioning. Here I am speaking to those singles who may be called to a life of singleness. Maybe this is, not, this is something you've never even heard of. A life of singleness? So that may be you. And you're questioning if you should consider or pursue marriage. This is a different category of singles. And I want to talk to Look at chapter 5, verses 31 to 32 here. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now look at this, verse 32. This mystery is profound. Mystery, something that was formerly hidden but has now been made known. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So every time you see a husband and a wife together as one, That's meant to be a picture by God's grace, even among unbelievers, that God sent his son for a bride. That's meant to be a picture. Every time you see a married couple, you should think that. Every time you go to a wedding, you should rejoice and delight in this wonderful thing that is Christ and the church. That is pointed to by this husband and this wife. Throughout our passage, what do we get? Wives do this as the church submits to Christ. Husbands do this. As Christ does the church. There's all throughout this passage constant comparative language. Christ, the church, husband, wife, always comparing throughout this passage. You can't read this passage without seeing that. The main thing to see here is that Christ and the church is the backdrop for human marriage and the greater reality to which it points. The ultimate relationship is what we see in verse 30. Look at verse 30 in our text. That's the ultimate relationship we are members of his body. Husband-wife, not the ultimate relationship. Christ and members of his body, an ultimate relationship. John Piper says this, and if you haven't bought This Momentary Marriage, I definitely recommend that you read that. It's a good book. It covers a lot of ground, and it makes this point so crystal clear. Throughout the book, this is the main thing, Christ and the church. Christ in the church, Christ in the church. Piper says this, Marriage is temporary and finally gives way to the relationship to which it was pointing all along. Christ and the church. The way a picture is no longer needed when you see face to face. Now this may be sad to some married couples. You think, man, hold on a second. I gave my wife just recently a Hallmark card that said, I will be with you forever. Or something something to that effect. This is pretty sad. I'm not going to be with you forever. And I think there's really, it's, it's unfathomable. We, re, we really don't understand what it will be like to be in heaven. I think we retain our memory. I think we retain that sense of relationality with people that we, that we knew in this life. But we just really can't know. But what we need to understand is that there will be no sadness in whatever there will be. There will be no tears. There will be no sense of longing like she lives over there and I live over here. And heaven is just, I mean, we, we live together on earth. We don't live together in heaven. This is sad. It's not going to be like that. 
Because everything, all of the emotions and all of the bond that you experience with your spouse is meant to be a picture of something that will be totally crystal clear, fulfilled in heaven. No sadness about it. Whatever it will be like, it will be perfect. Jesus says in Matthew twenty two thirty, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You guys ever seen an angel? I haven't. So we just don't know what it's going to be like. But we know this, that marriage is not ultimate. It's not ultimate. And this is why we get passages that uphold the value of singleness as a possible way of life for Christians. And I want to read these because this is something maybe that you've never encountered. You've never considered the fact that Christ could call a person to a life of singleness. Not just this general, well, I couldn't find anybody, so I'm single. But a, a, an intentional, a, a, an understanding of a calling that you are single with a purpose. Jesus says this in Matthew 19, 12. I want to read these. For there are eunuchs. A eunuch is someone who is celibate. There are eunuchs who, I should probably find that word too, uh, not having sexual intercourse. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. By the way, make yourself a eunuch does not mean what the early church father Origen thought it meant, and that is castration. Uh, There was a guy who did that. Um, But it it doesn't mean that. It simply means that you take on a life of celibacy as Christ has, has referred to it here. We also find this in Paul, 1 Corinthians 7. Listen to this. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious, some of us more so than others, about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Notice this. Paul is not saying that these are profane things. These are things that are sort of dirty. He's just simply saying that these are things that are not immediately relevant to the kingdom of God in terms of its outworking. They're not immediate to that. Exclusively focused on that. But rather to please his wife, to please her husband. And he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your, here it is, undivided devotion to the Lord. That's what Paul's after. Undivided devotion to the Lord is hindered by family life by necessity. By necessity. And it's part of the natural working of things. And Paul is simply saying for those who can take on this, this gift of singleness, for those who have this gift of singleness, for those who, who can take on this calling, take it on, he's saying. Now much could be said here about singleness, a big topic. But I want to draw your attention to two things about this particular calling. And I've already indicated both of these, but these are important as we think about it. Singleness is a gift that is not for everyone. So Jesus says in Matthew 19, 11, only those to whom it is given can receive this. It's a gift and it's a gift from God. There is a grace given by God To live a celibate life that is devoted in this way to the kingdom. That is single. That does not marry. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, meaning single, celibate, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So not everyone is called to singleness. It's a gift. It is a special grace given by God. And Andreas Kustenberger says this, on discerning singleness. So you're saying, okay, fine. How do I know? There's no uh, easy answer to that question. You check this box, check that box, check. I must have the gift. I must have the gift of singleness. That's not the case. This is what Kustenberger says about discerning. He says, there is no substitute for following God's personal step-by-step leading through the Holy Spirit. And one's understanding of one's own calling will of necessity be provisional since it is impossible to know what God might have in store for one in the future. And Timothy Keller remarks even that you could be called to singleness for a time, but then not for a later time. There's all kinds of ways that you can understand this or apply this. Uh, And and the truth is, it, it can be quite subjective. As you are seeking out with the Lord what it is that he has called you to. But the point I want to make here is that it is a gift, not for everyone. The second thing I want you to see is it is an intentional and focused way of life. It is an intentional and focused way of life. Jesus says it is for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And Paul says to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So here's what I want you to see. This is not self-serving singleness. And we all know what that looks like. Self-serving singleness says, I quite like being on my own. I quite like doing what I like to do. I quite like my career and working 12, 13 hours a day and doing whatever I want to do. I I enjoy this. I enjoy not having someone there that I have to serve or someone there that I have to please. This is just sort of a self-serving singleness. And there's much in, in our culture along those lines, this kind of extended adolescence. You know, not 20 until you're 40 kind of thing. Just extended adolescence where we go on teenage years go very far into 20s and into 30s and there's just really no sense of what it looks like to kind of grow up we got a lot of that and so there's a lot of self-serving singleness but this is different from Christ serving singleness this is intentional it has a purpose in other words a person who is called to the singleness I'm talking about is someone who has calculated who has thought about it who has made a commitment to the Lord and who has said, I discern this in my life. I'm going to devote myself to the work of the Lord. Whatever that looks like. It might be missionary work. It might be devotion to the church. It might be devotion in prayer. It might be devotion to taking care of the needs of the saints or working with a local ministry. But it's intentional. It's not just, yeah, I'm single. I'll make sure I go to church every Sunday. But it's intentionally guided so that you might have undivided devotion to the Lord, as Paul says. So those who are questioning. Thirdly, I want to look at those who are misunderstanding. And here I am speaking to those singles who have misunderstood, I'm trying to be charitable there, or disregarded, we would say, have misunderstood or disregarded the nature of union, and I primarily have in view those who are living together or sleeping together outside of marriage. Look at verses 31 to 32 again. You can never read these verses enough. Verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What do we learn about 
marriage from these verses. Marriage is described here as joining together of two people for life. This is a covenant that is meant to image the covenant between Christ and his church. This lifelong union that we read about here in verse 31 takes place before God and by God. And this is why Jesus says this, what God has joined together, let not man separate. You realize that when a, married, when a, when a husband and wife come together, even if they are not believers, they were still joined together by God. That marriage covenant still stands. So that to get divorced in that situation, to tear apart what God has joined together, even for unbelievers, will be part of God's judgment on that individual who never trusted in Jesus Christ. It matters. All marriages are before God and by God. That is the teaching that we have from the Lord Jesus himself. Now, two of the major ways that this covenant union is expressed are through the home and the sex of the married couple. These are two visualizations of the union that exists. So think about this for a moment. You go off and you start a home together. You know, in the ancient world, in kind of Old Testament times, families kind of lived together. And so uh, there would be living amongst, uh, you know, Abraham's sons would live, would live around him. There'd be different tents and so forth. But you would have your own space. You had your own unit, whether it's a portion of a tent or a tent or a space carved out for you. That is, that is your family's unit. That is your home. You leave, as it says in verse 31, and hold fast to your wife, and they become a unit. They become one flesh. So that's why we join up in a home. That's why we cohabitate. We cohabitate because of the truth of the union. The cohabitation, the living together of husband and wife is meant to be a visualization or a visual representation of that reality which is the leaving father and mother holding fast to his wife and the two become one flesh and a home results. A separate home. This is also the case with the sex of the married couple. The physical act is a sign of the covenant unity. And so the sexual intercourse of a married couple points back to the covenant unity that exists already, that they've entered into together. So Timothy Keller says this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. The Bible says, don't unite with someone physically unless you are also willing to unite with the person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally i.e. marriage. And he says, he goes on to say, sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. Every time a married couple has sexual intercourse together, they are saying that to one another. I belong completely, I belong permanently, and I belong exclusively to you. And he calls this your covenant renewal service. <laughs> That's an interesting way to think about sex and marriage. A covenant renewal service. We probably won't use that language, but I think it is quite evocative of what sexual intercourse is meant to be about and why. It's meant to only be in marriage. 
You know, oftentimes we just say, yeah, because the Bible said so. Sex is for married people only because the Bible said so. There's no depth of understanding. What we need to see is that there's a reason. There's a reason why the Bible says so. And the reason why the Bible says so is because this is about union, real union, that is then imaged in the intercourse itself. So here's what I want you to see. To live together and to have sex outside of marriage is to express something visually that does not exist. To engage in union activities without a union. In fact, it is a fake, it is a phony, it is a lie. When two people come and live together, cohabitate, who aren't married, it's a lie. When two people come together and have sexual intercourse who are not married, it is a lie, a fake, a phony, a deception. Contrary to what the Bible teaches about marriage and about union and about individuals. A few other additional comments that I want to make before we move on to growing. I have to explain a little bit what I mean by that. Is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says that we are united with Christ. He says, do you not know that when you uh, give yourself over to a prostitute that you unite yourself with her and you therefore take the members of Christ and you unite them with a prostitute? You do the same thing. When you engage in sexual activity as a Christian, you're a Christian, you engage in sexual activity with a person, you're living with someone or you're engaging in sexual activity with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or even your fiancé, you are doing what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 6 and he goes on to say this, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means the sexually immoral don't go to heaven. Let me say it this way. The sexually immoral go to hell. That's what Paul is saying there in 1 Corinthians 6. And that's not to say that you lose your salvation and get turned over to hell. But it is to say this. That if you continue in that way of life. As 1 John says. Those who practice sin are not of God. Because those who are of the light live in the light. Walk in that way. And those who don't are liars. They lie and do not practice the truth. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 6 is, and what I think 1 John is saying, if you continue in this course of life, you have every reason to believe that you are not regenerate, that you do not have the Holy Spirit, that you are not of Christ, that you do not belong to Christ, and therefore you have every reason to believe that you are still in your sins, that they have not been forgiven, and that the judgment and wrath of God is the only thing that awaits you. So... I think it's a wake-up call. You're here today, you're single, and you're having sex with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Hopefully this is a wake-up call. Heed and hear the word of God, both in your understanding and in your obedience to Christ. Also, remember the contrast throughout Ephesians. Darkness and light, sexual immorality, and purity and holiness. Christ's will for us is that we be pure, that we be holy, that we reflect him in the world. And all throughout the book of Ephesians, we've got these people who were dead in trespasses and sins, alienated from the life of God, children of wrath. But God, big rich in mercy, with great love, raised us up together with Christ and seated us with him, made us alive together with Christ. And if you're here today and you've never, this has never happened to you, you recognize, you know, I'm not, I'm not regenerate, I'm not a Christian. The Bible says repent and believe. 
Turn to the gospel. Turn to the message that God sent Jesus Christ, his son, into the world to pay the penalty for sin and raised him from the dead to validate that payment. To say, look, that payment on the cross is valid. I have received it. All who hope in him will be forgiven because my wrath has been poured out on him in their place. His righteousness, his perfection has been imputed to their account. And I'm raising him from the dead to show you this is true. Put your faith in that, Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, even the sins of sexual immorality. Finally, as we finish up this morning, I want to speak to a fourth group, and that is those who are growing or those who are growing up. And here I want to address those who are too young to marry, those who are still kind of growing up biologically and physically, but I want to address this group through their parents. So here I'm not actually talking to the 8-year-olds or 10-year-olds or 12-year-olds. Although the older you get, hopefully you are listening right now. But primarily what I want to do right now is talk with parents as we think about singleness. This is another group of singles. Children. Tweens, as Joanna calls them. Tweens and teens. Another group of singles. And I think we have to address them through their parents. So for those of you who are raising kids who will likely grow up to marry, what kind of husbands are you raising? What kind of wives are you raising? Singleness is a gift that some have. The normal course of affairs, though, is that your, your children, your children, even the little ones. I have a three-year-old. He will grow up. Most likely, not certainly, but most likely he will grow up and become somebody's husband. One of the responses that we have to have after we read chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, is how am I raising my son to grow up and be a husband who loves his wife like that? And how am I raising my daughter to grow up to be a woman who loves her husband like that? As a transition into the section on children, which is where we'll pick up next week, and then parents all together there, here is a good way to begin thinking about your target. You know, sometimes it's hard as parents because we just, we just don't know what we should focus on. There's so many things. These little kids, they're little, they're running around like crazy. You're just thinking, okay, I, you know, I've got some basic principles I need to, need to go with here. We're going to look at some of those details as we start in chapter 6, verse 1, going through verse 4. We're going to see precisely what we ought to do with our kids, how we ought to sort of funnel our efforts because you can just sort of be all over the place and you not get anything done. How do you funnel your efforts so that you're focused and intentional in how you're raising your children? But before we even get, this is what I want you to see, before we even get to those specific details about parenting, we need to understand that here in the husband and the wife we have a beginning target. Already you can leave here today and you can say, every day from this day forward you can say, I want to raise my son to be that kind of husband for whomever God provides for him. I want to raise my son to be that kind of husband who loves his wife, gives himself up for his wife, who protects, disciples, unites, and so on and so forth, all the things we looked at. And your little girl, I want to raise her to be that kind of wife. That's a good target. That's a good starting point. And teenagers, if there are any here, know this. This is a good target for you as well. As you're thinking about growing up and you know, going on, you're thinking about college and what you're going to do for, for a living. Also, it's important, I think, to start thinking about this. What kind of husband do I want to be? 
What kind of wife do I want to be? What if every 13, 14-year-old said that and got serious about that? How different our families would look. And what if every parent encouraged their teenagers to think like that? How different the families would look. And if your child is called to singleness, by focusing here, you will teach them more and more about the relationship between Christ and his church. In other words, you can't lose. If they're called to marriage, here it is. If they're called to singleness, here it is. What does it look like to be the church, to be a member of Christ's body? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for making us, giving us body and soul, making us in your own image. We thank you, Lord, for those of us who are married. We thank you for the wives, husbands that you've given us, Lord. We recognize that marriage is a gift, and we're just thankful that you give spouses to us, Lord, to to love and who love us. God, I pray as we come to the end of our discussion on marriage, I pray for all the couples in this church, Lord, who are really struggling right now. Wives and husbands who are frustrated and wives and husbands who are defeated. Maybe defeated about the marriage, maybe defeated about their own conduct, maybe feeling defeated about the other person's conduct and unwillingness and maybe even inability to change. God, we just cry out to you as a church on behalf of our families here at Four Corners and we pray for your grace. God, we know that you hear our prayers. We know that you hear our prayers, and when we come together in your name, God, you are with us, and we know that you pour out your grace, and you are good and loving and kind. You give wisdom when we ask, we seek, we ask, we knock, you answer. You are a God of faithfulness, loving kindness, a God of much love, and you have demonstrated that to each of us who are in Christ over and over and over again. God, bless our marriages. Be gracious and kind. And even today, Lord, would you bring that little light of hope for those who are really struggling. And God, for those in our church who are single, I just pray that they will move forward in wisdom and discernment. Wisdom about who and discernment about whether or not. And God, that in every way they will devote themselves to you. Knowing that whether they are married or whether they are single, that devotion to you is at the heart of it all. And God, I just pray for this entire body of believers, would you just... Bless us and help us, God, each person. We all have many things to work on. Would you do this work in us by your Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.